We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Alexis Madrigal. California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill yesterday that would have allowed facilities for people to do illicit drugs, so-called safe consumption sites. New York City is home to two such centers run by nonprofits. Advocates say those sites have saved hundreds of people who otherwise may have overdosed on city streets, while critics say they encourage drug use and addiction. We'll discuss whether advocates will keep pushing for safe injection sites in California, how well those centers have worked in other places, and the politics of Newsom's veto. That's all coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Alexis Madrigal. For many in San Francisco, the sight of someone smoking crack or shooting meth on the sidewalk is all too common. In 2020, nearly 9,000 people died from a drug overdose in California. One solution on the table is to offer people a place to use drugs safely. But these safe consumption sites are very controversial. Yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have given San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Oakland the green light to open facilities. In a statement, though, Newsom said the sites could open a world of unintended consequences. But these centers are saving lives in Europe and in New York City. So today, we'll discuss whether there is a path forward for safe consumption sites in California with a group of journalists who have reported extensively on this issue. And to start our conversation, we are now joined by Marisa Lagos, who's our political correspondent and also the co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And Heather Knight, she's columnist of of the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Leslie. Thank you. Uh, Marisa, how tricky is this issue or was this issue for Newsom to decide whether or not to veto? Well, I think it got trickier because of the kind of chatter we've heard in recent weeks and months over him possibly eyeing a White House run in 2024. Um, You know, that is fairly premature in a lot of ways because we don't know if Joe Biden's going to run yet. I don't anticipate that if he is and it's not a sort of big contested primary that Newsom would challenge somebody, you know, the head of the Democratic Party. Um, but it does seem like he's been sending signals that that's at least on his radar. And this, as you said, is controversial even among Democrats, right? This is not an issue that um, is sort of Simple. And, you know, that's complicated for Newsom because he's often been kind of a maverick, right? Think about gay marriage. That was not something the Democratic Party was supporting. He got a lot of flack when he opened up City Hall in 2004 to marriage. Um, But I think this is, in this moment, such a visceral issue. Um, You talked about it in the intro. We're like, right, we have seen it. There's often on Fox News and other national media a lot of kind of... um, pointing at San Francisco and and using this uh, as a sort of cudgel against the Democratic Party. Um, And homelessness and drug use is 
you know, a crisis in California. Um, and so I think it would have been a big risk to sign it. I think there's also a risk that comes with not signing it that, you know, the bill's author talks about Scott Weiner. This is really um, a crisis when we talk about homeless use and fentanyl overdoses um, that if Newsom runs, you know, for any other office will be used against him by opponents. And so I think that not being creative comes with risks of its own. He's kind of known as the evidence governor. Does this decision indicate that potentially if he's going to make a presidential run that the evidence per se, because there is very strong evidence that these these sites do save lives, that he will weigh his political needs, maybe potentially over the science? I mean, all politicians do to a certain extent. I don't expect Newsom to like give up that. And and if you read the his veto message, he talks about studying this, which again I know Scott Weiner is very mad about, and rightfully so. There's been a lot of studies, but I mean, I could see this veto message does leave open a path forward in which Newsom has his hand more on the steering wheel. Um, now you could say he could have gotten involved. This has been debated in the state legislature for eight years, and his administration could have been at the table with people like Scott Weiner. They chose not to, but he is saying that they are going to study it, and so. You know, that could open a path to either run the clock out so he doesn't have to make this call before 2024 or potentially to come back with legislation that he helps craft and that is more narrow and that does sort of hit. I mean, I can see from his perspective why you might want to limit the number of pilot sites or you know, specify more, you know, in, in more detail who has the ability to get these contracts and run these sorts of things. Um, but again, he had every opportunity to have that conversation ahead of time. So I think it does raise a lot of questions. And unfortunately, I'm not in his head. <laughs> and are you in Biden's I mean, head by chance? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be in his head? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> are you in Biden's head? I mean, is there a likeliness that uh, that he's not going to run? That sort of is shocking to me. I mean, I think it's a very long time between here and 2024. We got to get through these midterms and see what happens. Um, but Biden is old. He would be uh, 82, I believe, by the time the 2024 election happens and 81, 82. Um, and even in a deep blue state like California, um, we see a, a poll d- just came out last week showing that 46% of Democrats would like him to run and 46% say they would not want him to run. Uh, that goes up to 65% of independent voters, which in California are important to look at since they're like a third of the electorate. Um, or maybe not a quite a third. But And then Newsom leads that pack when you ask Californians. So I, Meaning I, that, that Newsom would, would, would be a be more top, likely candidate yeah, than would Biden. would be one of the top choices. Um, he and Bernie Sanders were basically tied, uh, followed by Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, when, when Democratic voters were asked who they would like to see nominated in 24. Um, again, there's a long road between here and then, but I, I think that it's going to depend on Biden himself, his health, uh, you know, how Democrats do this fall and um, how he continues to do. But it, it's certainly... For an incumbent president this early in his presidency, there are a lot of whispers, maybe is too kind of a term, a lot of chatter about whether he'll actually run, even though he has not said he won't and has, in fact, said sort of he will and then he will. And now, yes, he will. But we'll see. Got it. Got it. Well, let's turn to these safe consumption sites. Heather, you visited and wrote a fantastic piece about your experience being in New York City, visiting a couple of these sites over, I think, four days Kind of just paint us a picture. What was it like inside? Um, they were very clinical, very um, 
kind of look like a community center when you walk in. People are watching TV and drinking coffee and chatting, and there's lots of services available. These sites existed as harm reduction facilities before they opened the back room for um, drug use. So all of that is still there, you know, needle exchange and connections to treatment and doctors and doing your laundry and food and all of that. But then the new part is a back room that's been opened at both of these sites, one in Harlem and one in Washington Heights, um, which allow people to use any kind of drug. They have to bring it in. They don't provide the drugs um, under supervision. So they're sitting in these very kind of sterile clinical looking booths with mirrors um, in front of them. And then harm reduction specialists are standing behind them so that they can see in the mirror if there's any initial signs of an overdose and step in to prevent, you know, a horrible outcome. And so about... Eight to ten people can use the sites at one time. Um, they're collecting a lot of data. People have to sign forms with all sorts of information before they're allowed in the back room, including um, if they've used um, what kind of drugs they're going to be using, how often they use, um, what brought them there, what other services they're seeking. So a lot of um, information. And um, they use the drugs. They stay. They are given sandwiches maybe or um drinks just to make sure they're okay, and then they go on their way. Is there sort of a chill-out space where they're monitored after they get home? Yeah, they're monitored for a bit in that back room, and then they can um, hang out in the community kind of living area, living space, too. Got it. And are people screened? So can you come in and do drugs for the first time, or are these for, you know, sort of folks who are dealing with addiction? It's folks who are dealing with addiction. They made a big point that this is not like a, a tourist thing. This is not, you know, like a let's check this out uh, while we're in New York. It's intended for people struggling with drug addictions who really need um, monitoring so that they can um, be safe and not overdose. And obviously, we're still in discussions at this point in San Francisco about this. But is that what similar sites like this are what are on the table in San Francisco as well as the proposal that could unfold here? Would the sites look like that? Yes, that's the idea. Um, several nonprofit harm reduction groups, as well as a lot of City Hall officials, including Mayor London Breed, have wanted these to open for a long time. But there's just been a lot of legal concern, especially when Donald Trump was president, um, of what could happen federally or at the state level if they did do this, because it, it would be illegal. So um, they were hoping to at least get state permission from Governor Newsom, which they did not get yesterday. So, um, But federally, it's a little bit more optimistic, of course, with Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House. And the Department of Justice is looking at these and is expected this fall to have some sort of response to give cities an indication of whether they would face any pushback federally if they did move ahead. But a good sign is that New York City has not faced any federal repercussions. And so the expectation is that Biden's administration will give probably a go-ahead with some um, guardrails in place to make sure, you know, they operate as safely as possible. Got it. Well, I loved one of the characters in your book. This is Alsane Masson, and she has this kind of sweet and sour moment, as you describe it, trying to save a man in his 30s. What happened? Yeah, so um, she was this just great character. As a columnist, I love finding these, you know, amazing human beings that kind of tell the story because data and politicians can be kind of boring. But when you have the face on the story that really comes alive, she was that for me with this story in New York. And she's a Dominican grandmother and a harm reduction specialist who um, just lives to save these people's lives. She has two sons in their 30s, and a lot of the people coming into the harm reduction overdose prevention site are, are men in their 30s, too, that she can really relate to. And so she just 
talked constantly about wanting to be able to send these men home to their mothers. She talked about that a lot. Um, That was her goal. And so in one case while I was there, sadly, I wasn't able to witness it. Um, There was some (laughs) protections in place, but she described it almost immediately afterwards. So I got a really vivid picture. This man was... um, uh, injecting a needle into his arm and then began to show signs of overdose. And she and another worker there just responded immediately. And um, they massaged his sternum and they tipped his chair back. So he was um, on his back on the ground with his feet up in the air. And then they pulled the chair out and began um, CPR and life-saving measures right then. And she just described this panic of what if I lose him? What if he dies right here and, and I'm the one who didn't save him, but um, she did. So this site has saved 400 people so far. And another interesting point um, is that it actually saves the city a lot of money. The man who runs the site in New York City said that conservatively, any overdose on a street, which would lead to calling an ambulance and paramedics and police and an ER visit, could cost the city $30,000 or even more. And so when you times that by 400 lives, Save so far, that's $12 million that the city didn't have to spend. Yeah, I think there was a cost-benefit analysis done on kind of an underground site in, uh-huh. in somewhere in California. It's, they're not revealing where this site yes. is, but that it, the every dollar we spend, we save $2.33, if I remember that correctly. That so, sounds right. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the primary arguments that you often hear from opponents is that, do you really want tax dollars going to fund these things? But it seems that the evidence is showing that we really actually save money by putting our, our money here. Mm-hmm. And also you um, make the neighborhoods cleaner. In New York, This the sidewalks outside were totally free of drug paraphernalia. Vanilla, fewer needles. I didn't see dealers. Um, it was just, you know, your average sidewalk that you had no idea what was going on inside if you didn't know. We're talking about the possibility of California allowing safe drug consumption. These sites we're talking about with Marisa Lago. She's KQED politics correspondent. And Heather Knight, she's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. We'll be right back. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. This is Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Alexis Madrigal, and we're continuing our conversation about safe consumption sites. We're talking about the possibility of these sites coming to California. Yesterday, the governor made that a little bit harder by a veto, but uh, we are joined by some journalists who have covered this in other places and are joining us to talk about whether or not that could come to California still. Uh, Marisa Lagos is KQED politics correspondent. Heather Knight is a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And we're now also joined by Carolyn Lewis. She's a health reporter at WYNC, that's New York Public Radio there in the city, and Stephanie Nolan, who's a global health reporter for the New York Times. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Carolyn, I'd love to hear from you about how challenging it was for these sites to open in New York City and, and for how long it was sort of discussed before it opened on the ground and, and then how they're being received by, by the community. Well, they were actually, you know, being discussed for several years in New York before they finally opened. Um, the uh, mayor, former mayor of New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio, had agreed to sign off on like a pilot project uh, several years ago and said that he just needed, uh, you know, approval from the state. And the former governor said he was going to give that approval, but then never did, um, sort of citing the uh, lawsuit in Philadelphia and saying, you know, he wasn't sure what would happen with the DOJ. Um, and then finally, right before Bill de Blasio was about to leave office, he sort of decided to just go ahead with it. And so what they ended up doing was just coming to an agreement with law enforcement, you know, local law enforcement, um, and saying, well, if the NYPD isn't going to target these sites uh, and the Manhattan DA is okay with it, then, and, you know, the nonprofit running the sites is willing to take on the liability, then I guess we can just sort of go ahead with it. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they just sort of took that risk when it com- came to potential federal enforcement, which obviously, you know, hasn't come to pass, as people mentioned. Um, I will say there didn't seem to be a lot of like community engagement to see if the communities were open to these sites, um, which I think would have slowed down the process. Um, but they, you know, did open in sites that were already needle exchanges and already had harm reduction services. Carolyn, what did you hear from people on the ground in terms of the com- around the community or in the neighborhood? Are they welcoming? Are they worried about these sites? How, how are these sites being received locally? Um, I think, you know, especially in East Harlem, um, there has been some opposition. Uh, I think, you know, people there have claimed that they already bear too much of a burden when it comes to uh, services for drug users um, and worry about the sites attracting drug dealers and that kind of thing. Um, And I think there's this tension where some people who oppose the sites, you know, worry that it will attract more drug users and more conspicuous drug use. But you know, the advocates say, no, the whole point is that people are going to be using indoors. Um, You know, there's going to be less public drug use and less paraphernalia like used needles on the streets um, and in parks. And there was a study, um, you know, for the first two months of the uh, of the uh, of their operation that showed that I think three quarters of the people using the site said they would have otherwise used in a public place. We're talking about the possibility of California opening these sites that are operating in New York City, these safe con- drug consumption sites with Marisa Lagos. She's KQED politics correspondent, Heather Knight, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, Carolyn Lewis, she's a health reporter for WNYC, New York Public Radio, and Stephanie Nolan, global health reporter for the New York Times. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of Governor Newsom's veto? Have you maybe struggled with addiction? Would a site like this have helped you? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866 866- 
866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. A listener asks, do these sites attract more drug users to a city? I wonder why San Francisco has had such a large population of people addicted to drugs. And I'm curious about whether sites like these will bring people to the city. What do you think, Heather? I think people are already coming to San Francisco to because drugs are so easily available. And so I think um, having a place for people to go and do it safely is important. Stephanie, how, how do these sites operate? You've been watching this for years globally and around the world. How have these sites sort of taken hold and, and how well are they working in other places? Well, I have to tell you, Leslie, but listening to this conversation, uh, I'm a Canadian. I work for the New York Times, but I'm based in Canada. And listening to this conversation from a Canadian perspective is kind of fascinating because it sort of sounds like you're discussing trying something that nobody's done. But mm-hmm. harm reduction <laughs> sites, safe use sites, supervised injection sites have been used in other parts of the world. Vancouver got its first one 30 years ago. And so in that time, there's been time to generate an absolute mountain of evidence and to answer a lot of the questions that um, that you and 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 some of your listeners have been asking, um, it, these you know sort of sites are incredibly well studied in the cities in Europe that have had them for decades and in Canada, and they show that they overwhelmingly save lives. They cut costs. They reduce um, crime and public nuisance reports in the communities where they're based, uh, and that they you know they they have a, an overall positive impact on communities that experience a lot of drug use. So. It's kind of, um, I have to say, I was quite startled by uh, Governor Newsom's decision to veto. And I find it just kind of amazing that the U.S. is is um, talking about all this as if some of these questions can't be answered when it's, I think, reasonable to extrapolate that the uh, the evidence gathered in the places where this has been done for years probably also applies in the U.S. context. Well, Iris writes, uh, Newsom's sudden flip, which seems entirely political and due to the pressure of conservatives, NIMBYs and media sensationalism, flies in the face of the evidence and is just the latest example of him not truly believing in anything. The veto reasons are basically nonsense gibberish, continuing to study something so extensively studied and peer reviewed while citing vague and unspecified unintended consequences is an obvious delay tactic. I will never support him for public office again, period. This is disappointing, elitist, ableist frustrating and based in a totally false narrative of addiction as a moral failing that can be addressed through forced treatment and or punishment. Uh, Marisa, I'm curious if you think this kind of an issue is going to be a tipping issue at all. I I mean, clearly this listener is a one issue. (laughs) Um, A voter, I don't think that most voters are. And if they are, it will likely be with, you know, sort of bigger hot button issues like abortion or gun rights. Um, However, you know, I do think that Newsom sort of risks alienating folks clearly on the left, probably younger people might be more open to this. I think, you know, you do see generational differences. And I think in general, that's a a problem for Democrats. If we're thinking more broadly, I mean, young voters like in California, we've done a great job of registering, but not always a great job of getting to the polls. Um, and I do think that, you know, that would be among Newsom's base. He's pretty young for a politician, especially when you compare him to some of the other candidates who might be running uh, for president. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, just just what we've heard in the last five minutes speaks to the sort of difference of opinions on this and, and the fact that, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's a great point about, you know, us acting like we have to reinvent the wheel every time in America, every time something happens, because like data exists from other countries, too, and that doesn't make it invalid, right? Absolutely. Well, let's go to Chris in San Francisco. Chris? Because my main concern also... Um, is I live in a neighborhood in South Market in San Francisco where there are a lot of the services there and the people, my concern is just, you know, after they are using the drugs in their, in these safe environments, then they're let out into the streets right into our neighborhood where a crime is committed, where they're just lying on the streets like comatose. And, you know, it's just not a pleasant sight to see constantly. Would you say, Stephanie, that in the neighborhoods where you've seen these in other places in the world, that the neighborhoods around these sites are actually cleaner potentially after a site like this opens in terms of not seeing folks, um, you know, shoot up, et cetera, on the streets? Do these sites typically help clean up a neighborhood? Well, you know, I would say probably if that's the only intervention you're doing, then only to the extent that you don't get drug paraphernalia in the street parks as much, then that might be the only reduction that you use. And I went to Vancouver recently to do some in-depth reporting about the kind of more, um, I, you know, the sort of bigger basket of ways that they're trying to intervene out of a recognition that just supervised injection alone won't do it. So the the biggest uh, experiment that they're doing in Vancouver, which I think seems, you know, if, if California can't do safe injection, then I think you're probably a really long way from this. But really experimenting around safer supply, which is a recognition that that mostly what kills people and causes overdose is that people don't know what they're buying. They don't know what's in it. They think they're buying Adderall or cocaine and they're getting fentanyl. Um, and so that what you actually need to do is you need to give people access to pharmaceutical grade drugs where they know what they're getting. Um, you also need to, you know, the other thing they're doing in Vancouver that I think is pretty fascinating is that um, those programs, safer supply programs also come, um, they are offered alongside housing support, employment support, um, primary health care. And so it's a recognition that just kind of one track intervention doesn't solve the problem and might lead to the situation that uh, your caller was just describing. So you can't just do one of these things. Um, you need to do all of them in order for them to actually make a difference in the lives of users and then also in the communities where they're using. Carolyn, what are some of the opponents saying? Like, what are the big critiques that we hear about these these sites? Um, well, I think first, you know, what I mentioned, which is like people worrying that the sites will lead to uh, more drug paraphernalia or more conspicuous use, which I think like, you know, we've all said the whole point is to do the opposite of that and give people an indoor place to use. Um, but then the other thing that people mention is that you know, they feel like these sites represent just like giving up, like enabling people and saying, you know, there's no hope for them to stop using. Um, and I think, first of all, it's important to keep sort of front and center that they're like pretty much undeniably saving people's lives. Um, and I think that should be like not taken lightly. Um, but then, you know, also there is this idea that, um, you know, opponents worry they're not really connecting people to treatment. And like, that is a goal for sure of the centers that exist in New York. Um, we don't really have data yet on how frequently that's happening or how effective it is. Um, but what we have seen is that um, 
you know, from an early study in the first two months, more than half of the people who were using um, at these centers were also using other services like counseling, medical care, you know, testing for hepatitis C, and then even like holistic services like acupuncture. And so it is connecting people to healthcare and um, other things they need. And I think there definitely are efforts underway to create these like stronger connections with treatment centers. But there's also a lot of problems with like uh, addiction treatment and that whole system. And I think a lot of that has to be addressed in order for there to be uh, like a valuable connection to that type of care. Stephanie, do we have any data on how often these sites connect t- people to treatment broadly? I mean, since those sites that have been in operation for now, you know, decades, are they successful at connecting people to treatment? Um, you know, I think what you hear in Vancouver is that it kind of depends on what you're defining as treatment. So I assume that you're talking about like inpatient uh, inpatient. Uh, support that tries to get people to drug abstinence. And the evidence, you know, around the success of that treatment is that it works in the long term, it works for about 10% of people. So um, the conversation in Vancouver around treatment has really broadened to say, methadone is treatment, suboxone is treatment, cadian, these, these other drugs that can replace something like fentanyl are also treatment and safer supply is also treatment. So if you broaden how you think about getting people to, as Carolyn was just saying, not die, which I think we should all agree is kind of the first step. If you know, if that's the first goal of treatment, then there's a lot of evidence that that works. Um, how successfully do safer use sites? It, you know, it really like Vancouver moved away a long time ago from very medicalized safer injection sites. They've really found they have more success with community-based run safe injection sites um, at supervised injection sites. And so, uh, so, you know, the goal with a lot of those is to encourage people to look at, first of all, primary health care as the, the first thing you want people to access. Uh, it doesn't serve anybody's interest if there's a lot of untreated HIV or untreated TB or, um, or other infections in your community. And then to make sure that people have information about where other services are available. But you know, it's it's about, I think, broadening conversation away from if we don't get people to be 100 percent abstinent from drugs, then we haven't been successful. Yeah, Heather, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, that many of the people I talked to in New York said that they had started using less drugs because of the site. So they may not say they quit or that may not be their immediate goal. But almost everyone I talked to said that it was encouraging them to use less. So, of course, I think we would all think that's a step in the right direction. And Heather, you wrote about, which I thought was really surprising, that you might not necessarily have to administer naloxone, that that potentially you can stop an overdose from happening. And I'd, I'd never heard of that. So how does that work? Yeah, that was really eye-opening to me when I learned about this. So one of the big benefits of moving the drug use inside under supervision is that overdoses can be caught much, much earlier than if they happen, you know, in a subway station or in an alley or you're alone. Um, so the harm reduction specialists are so well-trained that they can intervene so quickly that they um, their goal is to not use Narcan, and they can sometimes just massage someone's sternum or sit them up straighter or give them oxygen. And there are these steps you can take before um, Narcan. And if they do use Narcan, it's a much smaller dose. So sometimes when we've seen overdoses happen, say, outside in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, it's a huge 
response, sometimes multiple doses of Narcan, and that actually sends the person into withdrawal. And so if they come to, they just want more drugs right away. Whereas the idea in New York is to let someone gently write out your high and not use drugs again quickly. Fascinating. Well, Raji tweets, why not support a nonprofit, as has been suggested as another possibility, to drive this controversial option forward? There are huge unmet needs in education, climate issues, drought mitigation, housing and transportation that the state's money could be used for. Uh, What do you think, Marisa, in terms of potentially having a nonprofit fund this or put it forward in San Francisco? How likely do you think that is instead of having the city fund or support? Yeah, I mean, we heard the city attorney, David Chu, say that that's sort of give his blessing to that idea. So it seems like if that is something that the mayor is really, um, you know, committed to, which I I think she has spoken about very, you know, supportively in the past, that it's definitely a possibility. Um, I would imagine that will be a much smaller pilot and and sort of not as ambitious as what, you know, the bill would have allowed. Um, And it could still, of course, attract you know, lawsuits or other opposition, even if that doesn't come from the federal government, I think we do have, um, you know, some folks who are very strongly opposed to that. And so we'll kind of have to see. But I mean, it's interesting, like, uh, Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, one of our reporters was out this weekend um, for I think it's National Fentanyl Awareness Day with a lot of families who were very much opposed to this bill. And yet every single uh, city official, including the newly appointed district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, who has promised to crack down on dealers, um, they all said they supported SB 57. And so I do think that you really do have a pretty sort of cohesive support in leadership in San Francisco. Um, I think it's just like there's a lot of other priorities. So is this the thing that they're going to stick their necks out for? Got it. Well, let's get in a quick call before we go to the break. Uh, Barnaby, you're on the air. Barnaby? Hi. Yeah. I, so my thought is that we already have legal use sites. They're called bars and nightclubs. One substance is not better than the other. We already have a problem when you're considering trying to save lives. We already have a problem with this. And regulation and quality control of product has been used for the largest substance we have, alcohol. Giving the same quality control and availability of um, comfortable use sites is just making the playing field fair to everyone. Fascinating point. We're talking about the possibility of California allowing safe drug consumption sites that would be supervised by healthcare workers with Marisa Lagos. She's KQED politics correspondent. Heather Knight, she's a columnist with the San Francisco Chronicle. Caroline Lewis, she's a health reporter for WNYC. And Stephanie Nolan, she's global health reporter for The New York Times. We'll be right back to continue this conversation. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Alexis Madrigal this morning. And we're talking about Governor Newsom's veto of California potentially piloting safe drug consumption sites with Marisa Lagos. She's KQED politics correspondent. Heather Knight, she's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Caroline Lewis, a health reporter for WNYC. And Stephanie Nolan, global health reporter for The New York Times. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of Governor Newsom's veto? Maybe have you struggled with addiction? And what would a site like this, could it have helped you during that time? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or reach out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. Let's go to Joshua in San Francisco. Joshua? Um, hello, yeah. Um, there's it's, it's such a large issue and so many things. My initial reaction to this is, you know, disgust and anger on so many levels. I think it's a reflection of Gavin Newsom, you know, being a politician more than his um, motivated by um, wanting to better things and be progressive and be, you know, thinking, looking at things logically. All around it, um, the way we treat addictions um, and addicts is, is disgusting. And it's a medical issue. It's universally agreed that, that drug addiction is a medical issue and should be treated as such. There's no other medical issue that people are, you know, it's so um, dogmatic, you know. Um, we don't treat people like that with other medical issues is basically what I'm trying to get out. Um, I personally do um, struggle with addiction. Um, do you think, Joshua, do you think a site... By prohibition, is made by prohibition. A site, I think, is a baby step in the right direction. Do you think a site like this could or would have helped you with your addiction? Um, well, just, yeah, expo- uh, well, I think going back, yeah, my exposure to it and how traumatic it has been and why society is treating me as a drug addict, yeah. Um, but personally, no, not in the way I use, use. But it's first, like the way we're treating people, like the ones that, oh, it's not very pleasant to people try being homeless and being like it's, it's so traumatic unto itself to be homeless and people can't be out there without without these hard things. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious I'm curious Caroline what are what are you hearing from people in New York City who are using these sites people who have struggled with addiction how are they embracing and, and how are they describing their experience at these sites Well I would say first of all a lot of the people who use the sites are homeless and um, these sites 
do, I think, make a point of offering them a space that is not just a space to use drugs, but a space where they feel respected, dignified, safe, um, like all these things that they may not feel in society in general, as the caller was saying. Um, and, uh, you know, I spoke to one person uh, when I was visiting the site uh, in, in East Harlem who was talking about how, you know, he would normally use anywhere on the street and like, um, and I think he just really appreciated having this space to go instead where like, it's not just that they are trying to make sure they don't die. They're trying to make sure they don't get infections. They're trying to make sure they aren't, um, you know, using in ways that are like unsafe or uncomfortable. Um, and I, and, you know, even offering just like spaces for people to sleep and rest, um, which also I think they see as like a form of medicine. Um, you know, I think for people who are unfamiliar with harm reduction spaces, it's probably very jarring to visit these sites. Let's go to Virginia in San Bruno. Virginia? Hi. I worked in the mission for 30 years in a medical clinic. And my question is, how do you handle behavioral problems that are bound to come up in the using sites? Stephanie, do you have a sense yeah, of that? What, what, have you, have, how have you seen that unfold in other parts of the world? Um, yeah, I guess I'm actually not totally clear on what that means, behavioral problems. Acting out. So someone who's high, who is acting out, is that what you mean, Virginia? Someone who, who is... Yeah, uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, I have to say most of the people that I've seen injecting opioids, uh, it, that high is a very... Um, a very sedating uh, high. So I haven't seen a lot of, I guess, what I would call acting out around um, safe use sites. But I think there, you know, the point, as one of your guests was saying a minute ago, is that you have a lot of people on hand, you have a lot of training in responding to, you know, whether that's an overdose or, or some other issue. Uh, and you don't have that by definition in an alley or a park or on a sidewalk, right? So you have people with experience who are there. Yeah. Um, when I visited New York, there was um, some rules in place. So they said, you know, we're going to respect you, but you need to respect this space and the other people in it as well. And so there were definite, you cannot um, provide or sell drugs in the space. You bring your own drugs, but there's no like selling it off to the side to somebody else. And also no fights. Um, if you are starting physical altercations, either of those would get you bounced. And so you have to be, there are, you know, rules for behavior there. Carolyn, I heard yesterday. Caroline, excuse me. I, I heard yesterday from an advocate that one of the things that was lost potentially by the governor's veto is that healthcare workers inside these sites, their licenses would be protected if it was government sanctioned. Mm. And yet, if a nonprofit is going to run these sites, that potentially their license wouldn't be uh, protected. I, is that true in New York City? That do we have actual healthcare workers on the front lines in these sites, or are these volunteers? Um, they actually did it differently in both sites. So um, in Washington Heights, it's uh, not healthcare workers. It's like trained, um, not volunteers, but trained staff um, and, you know, peers. And then in the East Harlem site, I think it's more um, healthcare workers um, just to sort of like test out different models. I'm not really sure whether people's licenses are at risk from working there. I haven't really heard that as an issue that was raised. Um, 
but I do think that like a certain amount of liability, like I said, has been placed on this nonprofit um, that's sort of putting itself out there. And um, like they're even sort of funding this themselves uh, without public dollars, because even though the city is championing them and say, you know, taking credit for the lives that they're saving, uh, the city health commissioner has said that they won't actually, you know, fund these sites until they get state or federal support. Yeah, in New York, it is run by a nonprofit, and um, they are paid staff, uh, harm reduction specialists, or in the Washington Heights um, site, you know, former users themselves who are trained um, to help others. But um, they in New York, it's pretty much the exact same situation as in California. They don't have state permission, and they don't have federal permission, and um, it's run by a nonprofit funded by private donations. So um, the man who started this, Sam Rivera, was careful to set up a bank account just for the Overdose Prevention Center, apart from the rest of the um, services offered at the site to try to protect um, this uh as much as possible from any um, intervention. But I think it's important to keep remembering that this has existed in New York since November, and there's been no um, state or federal intervention. And so all signs would point to the same happening here in San Francisco, um, that while technically it may be illegal, nobody's going to do much about it. Got it. Got it. Well, listener asks, what are the gross costs of these programs? You mentioned that we've saved potentially $12 million. Do you know how much it has cost these nonprofits to run these two sites in New York City? Oh, I should have had that number with me. I don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, um, I had asked at one point what their current budget was, um, and I think it was tough for them to like uh, uh, find those figures for some reason. But they did say that if they were to operate the two centers um, 24-7, which is like sort of what they're aiming to do at some point, um, it would cost $2 million uh, per year, um, which I think, you know, again, considering the potential savings when it comes to emergency services and hospital care and that sort of thing um, likely points to, uh, you know, a bargain. <laughs> well, let's go to Steve in Oakland. Uh, Steve, you're on the air. For over 20 years, uh, and I've seen a lot, and I... Steve, we're losing you a little bit. Never agreed with that. But, but I also believe that should addicts not be prosecuted, but they should be helped. And I'm wondering how, you know, this sounds like it really helps the city, and it helps with liability, it helps with death, and that's, I think, a move in the right direction. But addicts are our brothers, our sons, our mothers, our sisters, our cousins, our uncles. These are our fellow men. And I'm just wondering if there's a planning, to, if any of this uh, would include treatment options so that they, people can, these addicts can regain their sense of responsibility in society, their sense of identity for themselves, their sense of ethics and integrity, and get back to being contributing members of society again, as opposed to our simply sanctioning their continuing spiral. Heather, do you want to take that? Sure. Yeah, I really saw what you're talking about in New York. Um, so I think that just having one place that's available every day to go and you see the same faces, the same staff, um, like we were talking about, the the grandmother named Alstain Mazone is there every day. And she talked a lot about seeing um, people and building relationships and encouraging them to, she would talk a lot about, you know, when they had a good day and they were looking put together and 
you know, looking happy and good, she would tell them, call your mother. This would be a great day to call your mother. And she just um, constantly would try to rebuild the family relationships, talk about options for treatment. Um, She said, I'm not going to force anything on people. I can't. But if um, anybody asks, I will do anything I can to help them. And she actually um, builds relationships with their family as well. She said that she talks to a lot of the mothers of these people who come to use the sites. And they may be wealthy people from upstate or they may be um, homeless moms themselves, but she talks to them and tells them how their kids are doing and and what's needed to get them going in the right direction. Stephanie, what about long term? So you've followed this on a much more, you know, longer scale. We've only had these here for, you know, the last year, basically. What have you seen in terms of how these sites operate to help folks, you know, either stay, stay sober, uh, longer term? Well, if we're talking about super inj- supervised injection sites, that's really not their goal, right? Their goal is to keep you from dying while you use. And um, and I and I think I would say, like, just responding to what a couple of, of the last two callers have raised, there's maybe in places that don't have them, there's maybe less familiarity what it looks like. But people who have a pretty sort of significant, who are pretty significant opioid users, like they're um, injecting several times a day, they're in and out of there in a very business-like way, kind of getting on with the rest of their day. So it doesn't become a, you know, a party hub or a special scene. There's just a lot of very rapid traffic in and out of the door. And then in fact, Vancouver has set up British Columbia and Alberta have set up supervised injection sites in some of their hospitals out of a recognition that people were people with um, serious addictions were leaving the hospital before they could get treatment because they needed to stave off dope sickness. And so putting a supervised injection site in the hospital gave people a safe place to use and then get their chemotherapy or their treatment for their car accident. And so the goal of those sites, I think, is very much about um uh, just giving people a, a place to use. And like I was saying earlier, I think what you see in other places that are maybe further down the road in a sort of larger harm reduction response is that's one thing you do. And needle exchange is one thing you do, but maybe also safer supply and supplying, uh, you know, making sure that there is a safe supply of drugs or, uh, you know, Vancouver, British Columbia has has negotiated, sorry, no, the city of Vancouver has negotiated with Canada's federal government decriminalized possession. So you take law enforcement out of the picture. It's kind of one thing that you do um, around creating the space for just a larger public health-based response. When you say safer drug supply, you mean potentially not laced with fentanyl or something like that. I think some folks might hear like, when, when are drugs ever safe? Yeah, so in Vancouver, they're they're careful to use the phrase safer supply, um, out of, you know, not just safe supply, but safer supply. But Vancouver, for example, the, the um, main focus of the story that I wrote there um, last month was uh, they have a fentanyl dispensary now. So they've reckoned one doctor has set up this dispensary recognizing that fentanyl is in all the drugs. Fentanyl is what's killing people. And so what we need is a place where people can uh, get pharmaceutical grade fentanyl, where they know exactly what they're buying, where they can use under supervision and um, where they're not going to die. And once we've removed the risk that they're going to die, then we'll start to have a conversation, um, much like the, the description in Harlem. Uh, hey, where are you living these days? When did you last talk to your mom? Do you have clean clothes? What are you eating? What what other service, what mental health service can we connect you to that might put you on a road to a different relationship with drugs? But, you know, step one is if you're using 
40, 50, 60,000 micrograms of fentanyl every day uh, and you're buying it from a dealer, well, the thing that the first thing we need to do to keep you from dying is make sure that you have a safer supply of the drug. So Vancouver's been doing this for 15 years with heroin, with dilaudid, um, and the fentanyl program is is the sort of latest iteration of safer supply. And has there been have there been any overdoses in any of the sites that you have followed over the years? Do they still happen in these sites? Uh, so the fentanyl site is new and there hadn't been any uh, when I was there. I think historically there in some of the community run sites, there have been there have been overdoses. There have been no deaths. Got it. Ramana writes, I believe the idea of safe places is extremely good overall and compassionate, but not before midterms unless Democrats, liberals and progressives want to give away both the House and the Senate on a platter. I strongly believe then Mayor Newsom cost Kerry his presidency presidency due to naivete and should have waited for elections to be over. This time he showed political maturity. Hopefully the bill comes back immediately after midterms and Governor Newsom signs. Do you think there's a chance, Marisa? Well, the legislative calendar doesn't really allow that. And I think it's important to note that this bill passed with two votes, you know, over a bare majority or one vote over a bare majority in the uh, assembly and just one vote, none to spare in the Senate. So this is not this was not overwhelmingly popular in the legislature. Um, And again, his veto message is very clear. He wants his own Health and Human Services Agency to study this. Um, Again, I think we should check back with Senator Weiner and the administration like in January when the new legislative session starts and see uh, where they're at. But um, you know, judging by the way government works and the fact that this could just be a delay tactic by Newsom, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, these say that Rhode Island is the only state that has approved these. And as far as I know, Caroline, these have not gotten off the ground in Rhode Island. And if it can't pass in California, what do you think the chances are that these could get off the ground in the U.S.? Um Wait, sorry. So you're uh, well. I think I think it's up to the DOJ to reach a settlement with, uh, you know, the the Philadelphia site safe house. Um, you know, they have basically pushed off every deadline that they've had to uh, announce a settlement in that case. You know, first it was supposed to be today. The latest was supposed to be today, August twenty third. That got pushed to September twenty second. So clearly, everyone is considering elections, politics, all of these things over this intervention that like. I think, undeniably saves lives. Gotcha. Heather, any thoughts from you in terms of how likely we might see these sites in in San Francisco, regardless of what the state does? Well, considering City Hall has been talking about it um, since I was a City Hall beat reporter like 10 years ago, (laughs) I don't think it's going to be, you know, like mark your calendar for next week or anything like that. But I do know there's a push from harm reduction specialists and nonprofits who really want to get this done. So who knows? We will we will see. To, to be determined. Well, we've been talking about the possibility of California allowing safe drug injection sites, despite Governor Newsom's veto uh, allowing this to unfold here in, in California with Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent Heather Knight, uh, chron- columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, Caroline Lewis, health reporter for WNYC, and Stephanie Nolan, global health reporter for The New York Times. Thank you all so much for a Thanks, great conversation. Leslie. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.